0: of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of occupied America. In this podcast, Laura will tell us of how she got some information that pretty much confirmed for her the reality of reincarnation. It was a story that had to do with her own son. This case was, in many, many ways, quite similar to the ones that Ian Stevenson studied if you read The Exorcist in Love, of course, you're not going to have the whole inside story because Tom didn't write everything for certain reasons that uh, that I'm going to try to explain. When he was three years old, and, and Tom does write about this, he, my son was, was doing some very unusual things. First of all, he was very excited by airplanes, and he would jump up and down when he'd see one go by, and he'd say, I used to fly those, And then he would talk about his uh, other family, his brothers, his sisters, uh, his dog, his dog named Sam or Samson. And he had a secret friend named Janie who he talked to, you know, in the bathtub, in the bathroom, you know, whatever. You'd always hear him if he was playing by himself, talking to someone, and you'd ask him who he's talking to, and he'd say, I'm talking to Janie. This went on for a while, and then what happened was that at at a certain age, he started exhibiting certain physical problems took him to the doctor the doctor told me that he had one leg that was shorter than the other and this was causing back problems and he also had uh, a very serious issue with asthma from early infancy he was hospitalized probably about once a week for a couple of years just you know just to get him get him back to to help him breathe you know he had injections he had you know different kinds of therapy he was on medications so there was uh, there were some serious physical issues here. And he also had terrible nightmares that began at infancy. And, and we're not talking about a child who had any kind of abuse because, you know, I was there, I was observing, I was watching, I was taking every care possible that, you know, none of the things, you know, would happen to my children that happened to other children I read about or other children I encountered, you know, in, in my therapeutic activities. So... When a child is born having terrible nightmares and having these problems develop, when every single thing that possibly can be done to guard against any sort of trauma has been done, then you you come to some sort of a conviction that there is something else going on. There must be something else going on, that some of these issues the child brought with them when they were born, because they certainly didn't happen in his early life uh, as my child. might also say that it's not only negative things that can be brought from another life. You look at child prodigies, musical prodigies like a Mozart, there are people that would argue that there's something in him that may have come from another life to enable him to... Uh, to be such a musical genius at such a young age. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, that happens, and I think that that happens uh, quite often. Unfortunately, people don't recognize it and nurture it and help it in the same way that they don't recognize some of the traumatic things and deal with them in, in an appropriate mm-hmm. way. I mean, the very fact that we have that we have this Judeo-Christian lockdown on our thoughts in Western culture has so limited our reality that it's it's absolutely shocking to see how we torture ourselves and torture each other with this limiting belief system but in any event uh, by the time my son was about 9 years old I thought it was and the nightmares were getting very bad I thought it was time to to try a little guided imagery a little uh, gentle hypnosis to see if I could find out what was what was really going on and in hypnosis he he explained that he had been a pilot in Vietnam and that he had been shot down by a missile every time we approached the subject of course it was extremely traumatic but I I, I made two or three approaches to it with hypnosis and each time I did there was you know a, a considerable amount of relief and each time you know more details came out but it was clear that this was something that was very very deeply traumatic and so later on uh, after the after the uh channeling experiment with the cassiopeians which believe it or not is 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 the original subject of this series of talks and we will get to that (laughs) so just bear with me in another six or seven weeks yeah just just (laughs) hang on i asked i asked the c's about about my son now you have to keep in mind that that this issue about his his so-called past life or what he talked about was not something that i discussed with the people who were participating in the experiment with me, they were they were pretty much not in, in the know on any on any details. So when I asked the questions, I asked fairly open questions, you know, why is my son having uh, these nightmares, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, what about the asthma and so on and so forth. So the C's gave us some information. And what's more, this was one of those times that I asked a question That I had formerly asked rather frequently when I was doing hypnosis with people who were talking about past life which was that I would ask for a name I would ask for specific details you know something that I could track or check so I did on this occasion though I wasn't dealing with hypnosis I, I asked the C's you know can you give us a name or is there is there a name and they gave me two names they did not specify whether it was first name last name or whether it was you know first and middle name or what net what it was, but they gave two names. So that was just something that was there in the transcripts, and I thought that the their description of the of the death of the events surrounding this pretty horrible incident were interesting, and they helped to explain in some way some of the issues that my son was having, but for For some reason, and, and it was probably because I was because I was busy and also because I wasn't quite ready to confront that myself, because we are talking about my son, and it, there was some emotional things going on with me there where it, it hurt me very much to think of someone that I loved so much having suffered such a horrendous end. So I didn't pursue the matter sometime later. One of the group members was reading through this particular transcript, and he said, uh, have you ever ever checked on this? And I said, no. And he said, do you mind if I do? And I said, no, go ahead. So the next week he came back and said that he had logged onto a website that had the list of all the soldiers, military personnel, killed in Vietnam. Uh, I think it was a list of the names that were on the Vietnam Memorial. And he said, uh, I found the name. He had found the first and the middle name that matched, exactly, uh, with the last name. And as Tom French mentions in his article, you know, the reason, you know, there are reasons why I can't share these names, so I'm not going to. But in any event, it turned out that the individual lived just a few hours away from us, down in ponagorda And I thought that that was quite fascinating. So that, uh, oh, that week or the next week, I mentioned it to Tom French, who, who came to my house once or twice a week, every week for several years, while he was doing the, the interviews for his article. And I mentioned it to him, and he says, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I don't think that I ought to do anything about it. I mean, this is, this is not a subject that's really acceptable in, in our society. and And, I mean, what do you do, you know? I mean... You you, you can't do anything. He says, well, aren't you going to try to verify any of the facts that that, that the C's gave you? And I says, well, I don't know how. And he mentioned that, you know, well, I could check newspaper records and so forth. I says, okay, I'll try. So sometime later I got on the phone and called down to the, uh, the city of Punta Gorda, found the names of the the local newspapers tried to see if I could get access to any newspaper articles about this local person uh, who had died back in in uh, during the Vietnam War. And uh, I learned from the newspaper people that, yes, they have the files, but they're hard copy files, they're in boxes, they're packed away in a warehouse, and the only way I could get that information would be pay to pay an exorbitant sum of money, to have somebody to go and hand-search the records. I was pretty discouraged about that because, you know, nowadays we're so used to having everything available on the Internet that, you know, thinking about somebody going to a dusty old warehouse and digging through boxes of newspaper files just to find an article is is pretty, pretty daunting. But then she mentioned you might find something out in the local library, and she gave me the number of the local library in that town, and I called the library and spoke to a woman there who who did a little search for me, found nothing, and then she mentioned just before she hung up that, well, you might try the genealogy section. So I said, okay, so I asked her to do that. So she went away again, and she did a little checking, and she came back. She says, yes, we've got him listed, and we've got, you know, the death and everything. It's listed in the genealogy section, she said, and and also it mentions the name of the funeral home that handled the arrangements, and also the cemetery where they're buried, because all of that sort of thing is is considered to be important to genealogists. So she says, why don't you call the funeral home? Well, by this time, you know, I mean, I've already made two phone calls, so why stop at three if I was going to finally get my information? So I call the funeral home, <clears throat> and I ask my question. I, I'm inquiring about a, a captain, you know, so-and-so, who who was uh, a soldier in Vietnam and who died, in and, and I gave the year, and I understand that you're... Your uh, company handled the funeral arrangements, and I would like to find out if you by any chance have any have any details on where and how he died. And she said, well, just a moment. And she went away, and I was left on hold for a rather long period of time, and finally a man came on the phone, and he says, I understand you're looking for information about Captain so-and-so. And I says, yes, And and he asked me, he says, well, why do you want to know? Why are you asking? And I had no, I had no story. I, I frankly didn't expect to be asked that question. I mean, if you call and ask about something to a newspaper or to a library, they don't ask you why you want to know. They just, you know, if they if they can, they do the research and they give you the information. But here, all of a sudden, I was being asked why do you want to know, and I was caught rather off guard, and I had no story prepared. And I don't really think fast on my feet, so the only thing I could do was tell him the truth. (laughs) And I explained to him, why I said, well, this is going to sound really strange, but, you know, my son has had these memories since he was very little. And I believe that, uh, you know, and I mean, and there is a name. I didn't talk anything about the seas, of course, because that was just getting a little too weird, so... I just gave the the data that I had, which came both from my son and from the seas about the individual and the and the death, and and of course that included stories about his his brothers and sisters. Keeping in mind he didn't have any brothers in this lifetime, and his dog, and so on and so forth. So the man just you know was very quiet, and then after I finished talking, he said, he said that is the most amazing thing I have ever heard this is just so amazing I just I am just so excited about this you just have no idea do you mind if do you know that his two sisters still live here in Punta do you mind if I tell them this and I thought oh my god this is really getting out of hand no I don't (laughs) want him telling anybody I just, for God's sakes, want to know the details. Of, you know, I, I wasn't saying this, Tim. I was thinking. I just want to know the details—how the guy died, so that I can confirm if or if not the information that I have received is or is not true. I do not want to make a major production out of this. I do not want any any attention. I I I just I just want to know those details. That's it. But I couldn't. I couldn't say it to him that way, and I explained to him that I just really wanted to know, to confirm the information. I didn't want to upset anybody's life. I didn't want to, you know, for, to call somebody up and say to them, you know, hey, uh, your dead brother may be reincarnated in some kid a couple miles, uh, a couple hours north of here, because that's that's just that's just way too too traumatic. I mean, how would I feel if somebody called me up and and I had a a deceased relative, and they says, oh, you know, your deceased relative is now living with us. (laughs) I mean, this is is not normal behavior in our society. So I said, well, I don't know. I don't think that's a very good idea. He says, oh, no, they're very open-minded. They will just be so excited. You've just, you know, please let me tell them. And I says, well, if you think that they won't be upset and that this won't be like a traumatic thing to say to them, you know, I I guess it's all right. But, you know, I, I have my reservations. And he says, all right. So, And he said, well, I'm going to fax you the newspaper article which he had in his files on the death of the individual. So a few minutes later, the fax arrived with this newspaper article. Unfortunately, this fax came in on one of the old type fax machines, which had the the heat paper, and they don't really last very long, so my copy of it is rather faded, uh, almost unreadable, but readable enough that you can see what it's about. So... A few hours later the phone rang and it was a woman and she said, Hi, I just came back from lunch with so and so and you don't know me but my name is I am blank's sister. And I was sitting there and I'm holding the phone and I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is this is really one of those unreal moments in your life, you know, where you where you, you really don't know what to say. I mean uh, Emily Post and and so forth they never they never wrote a book on the on the proper etiquette of what do you say to someone who's calling you up saying oh i'm the sister uh of a guy who's dead now and has been reincarnated as your son you know it, it's it's like <laughs> you know <laughs> what do you say so i was i was pretty uncomfortable and i was just trying to have a normal conversation and i told her well you know i don't know that this is necessarily you know, a factual thing, but, you know, this is the information we had and I, I'm really concerned that I don't want to upset anyone. And she said, oh, no, no, don't, oh, no, no, everything, I will, oh, I, I really want to meet him and da-da-da. She was all excited. And I was not terribly excited. And there are, there are of course, a number of reasons for that. I mean, it, it's not terribly exciting to a mother to learn that her son has a previous family. <laughs> you know? I mean, just think about it for a minute. uh, I mean, what if he likes them better than me? you <laughs> so, know what if he wants to go back <laughs> what do you do so it she wanted she wanted to meet him, and I said, well, you know that's you know that's not something we can do right now. it may be later in the year, so she said, I'm going to send you. Uh My address, you know, or let me have your address. So I gave her my address, and a few days later she she sent me in the mail a card with a little map of how to get to their place, so that you know basically it was kind of an encouragement to to please come and visit kind of thing in in some later years when I was doing my doing my genealogy research, I did discover that uh uh there is a family relationship. Uh, between my family and this other family down in Punta Gorda, which is not terribly surprising because they were old-time Florida residents and so were we so uh, somewhere back way back when the families already had gotten together and probably we shared some of the same bloodlines but that's neither here nor there because I was faced with the problem what am I going to do now so naturally I reported this to Tom French and he was just so excited. So excited. Oh, you've got to do this. And I said, I don't think I really want to do this. Uh, I mean, what am I going to say to these people? And, you know, so... But he was so enthusiastic about it. I thought, okay, for Tom, I'll do this. You know, ordinarily, I would have just let it fade into the background, never would have contacted the people, you know, would have found excuses from now until the cows came home and nothing else would have ever happened. However because he he wanted to to have something interesting like this to report in his article and i felt well it is there and i there you know i could do it so i decided to do it now i want to uh to mention that there was a little bit of a discrepancy between the report from the newspaper on how captain captain blank died and how the seas had described it and also how my son had described it because the the newspaper report said he crashed on takeoff pilot error and both the C's and my son had said that he had been flying and that he had been shot down by a missile over cambodia well now those of you who know know that uh, the united states was not supposed to be flying missions over cambodia so even if he had been flying over Cambodia, they probably wouldn't have admitted it, and then that would uh, account for uh, the discrepancy. But anyhow, things did get really bizarre. We made the trip down there. Tom, Tom French and Cherie Diaz of the, of the St. Pete Times, and I'm St. Petersburg, Florida, that is, went with us. And it was a truly strange meeting. Uh, there was... These two sisters or, you know, family members, nieces and nephews, and so on and so forth, and we were talking, and they had a whole box of memorabilia that they had taken out. They had, you know, toys that belonged to their brother. They had uh, letters. They had some of his military items and so forth, and all these things were there. They had sold the family home in years past, but they had made arrangements for us to pay a visit to the house, even with the new owners there, <clears throat> so we all got in our vehicles and drove over to where they used to live when Captain So-and-so was a child and they were growing up, and uh, everybody was watching my son to see if he remembered anything, if anything seemed you know, unusual to him, and he... he as far as he was concerned, you know, the house felt vaguely familiar, but nothing special about it. And it wasn't until we got back and we were sitting around talking and I was explaining to them, you know, some of the things that he'd been doing when he was little and about his, you know, just talking about his dog, his brothers, you know, which he had the right amount of brothers and, so, and sisters and so forth and talked about his dog Sam or Samson. And there and then they stopped and they said, let me show you this. And they pulled out a photograph of all of these brothers and sisters with this black dog named Samson. So we're all sitting there going, well, okay, that's a hit, but no cigar. And a little bit later, I was explaining about him talking to his secret friend, Janie, and that's when everything got really very quiet. They're all looking at each other, looking at me, I'm looking at them and then they're looking into the box with all of these cards and letters in it and finally the sister reaches in and she pulled out a card and she handed it to me without saying a word and I opened it and it was signed Janie it was like a birthday card and I looked at her and she says "She says the thing about this is, is nobody outside the family knew that that was a private thing between me and my brother because her name wasn't Janie But she explained that they had an aunt whose name was Jane and that she looked and acted very much like this aunt when she was little and her brother had taken to calling her Janie, which was diminutive for Jane, uh, basically as a way of of saying, you know, you're just like Aunt Jane, so I'm going to call you Janie. And whenever they uh, sent cards or letters to each other, she always signed it Janie because that was his particular name for her and no one else's. They had this very very close relationship, so everybody was a little bit kind of freaked out by that. And then the next thing that happened that was even more amazing was that uh, the funeral director friend, who was a, f- a friend of the family, uh, arrived and he apologized for being late. That he'd had a funeral to do. I mean, you know, I guess that's what funeral directors do. And he listened to everything everybody brought him up to date on what we'd all been talking about and he sat there and he was very very quiet for a few minutes and he says well you know i was a friend of captain so and so he was he was my friend when we were growing up and it was one of the hardest things i ever did to you know to to handle his arrangements to get him ready for burial you know to, to prepare his funeral and he said i want to tell you a story and he said i've never told this to anybody." before and i'll i'll never tell it again but when i went to the airport to collect the casket i was met by two military types who who were the escorts and i asked them when i you know had gotten it loaded into the hearse you know can i can i prepare him for burial can he can is he is it suitable for are the remains suitable for viewing and they said, the casket is sealed. Leave it that way. You do not want to open that casket. And I asked them, why? And they said, he crashed in the jungle. And it took us two weeks to find him. And he said, but I thought he crashed on takeoff right there at, at, the, at, the, at the base. I said, no that's the story that's that's put into the that was given out to the press and the reason we're telling you this was because you know you're you're in the National Guard and you're under the under the restriction of military secrecy. this is a military secret. He was flying the jungles over Cambodia. So this guy told us this information, told it there in front of this family and in front of Tom French and Cherie Diaz, myself and my son, and we all sat there, very quiet for a little while because it was really quite shocking. And then the sister started to cry. One of the sisters started to cry. And she said, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. They always said it was his fault. And he was supposed to come home the next day or two days later. And then, you know, and then he died. And I knew that, you know, that he would have been very, very careful because he was getting ready to come home. And uh, so... That was pretty much that, and we everybody was very quiet for the whole rest of the day and then later on, after we came home, tom French Tom French had had borrowed from the family a collection of their pictures and memorabilia that he was going to that he was going to get copied at the times uh, the Times office that he was going to use in the article, and he had their permission, and everything was you know all set up about oh a few weeks later he had reason to call them because something very strange happened and as tom told me he said this has never before happened to me all of these photographs and all of this material that belonged to this to this family that had related to this this particular individual who had been in the military disappeared from the times office and it this is not something that people in newspaper offices you know, who are used to having material that they copy and, and utilize and return to its proper owners and so forth, that this was an extremely unusual situation. The people who were in charge of that department were very you know, upset. Tom was very upset, and he was the one who ended up having to call the family to tell them that their, their photographs and, and letters and things that basically were the evidence for this case had disappeared. And at that time, he was very surprised because when he talked to the sister, she had suddenly turned very cold. And she said, you know, we're we're withdrawing our permission for you to write about this. You know, we we don't want to have anything to do with this. And then, oddly enough, they they made the remark that they thought that I was just looking for publicity. You know, that I was trying to find out about their brother and, and use his name and so on and so forth just to get publicity for some reason and they wanted to have nothing to do with it, and that they had contacted the government and asked them, demanded from them the information about why they had lied about the death of their brother, you know, that he had died uh, in a plane crash at the airport, when in fact, you know, someone else was now saying that he had died in an illegal flight over Cambodia, and that the government had assured them that the official report was correct, And they were accepting that as as the fact, and the case was closed, and they wanted no more to do with it. And that was that. Let me just read what Tom French wrote about that. Tom wrote in his article that uh, she and her sister had agreed to meet with Laura and Jason, she said, merely to see if there was any substance to the story. Afterward, she said, they had decided there was not. Yes, Laura and Jason had supplied some details that matched their brother's life, but many other details, she said, were wrong. For instance, Laura had talked about how the captain had died while returning from a mission. But after Laura and Jason left, the sister had written the federal government under the Freedom of Information Act and obtained records of her brother's death. Those records, she said, showed that his plane had not been hit by a missile, that it had crashed on takeoff. Now she wanted no part of Laura's theory. She felt sorry for Jason and wondered if Laura had planted these suggestions in his mind. As for the facts that did match, she said they were possibly a coincidence. She also wondered if Laura could have researched the family long distance before the meeting. Either way, the sister did not want her brother's name or her family's name connected to the reincarnation story. I just don't believe a word of it, she told me. I had no idea what to make of it. Many of the details supplied by Laura did not fit, and yes, she could have engineered the whole thing. Still, I had seen the surprise on the sister's face when the nickname of Janie was first mentioned. If Janie was only a family nickname, how much work would it have taken for Laura to come up with it? In a town the size of Punagorda, wouldn't the captain's family have heard if someone was checking up on them so extensively? And, of course, Tom was unable to write all these other details that I have just given you. But nevertheless, uh, the one, the most important thing was the report of the individual who ran the funeral home who said in front of witnesses that he had been told a different story about the captain's death in confidence and that he had been sworn to secrecy and for all those years he had kept that secret that he only revealed that day and that that confirmed Exactly what Jason had said under hypnosis and exactly what the C's had said in the session later. And for me, that was about as compelling a story of reincarnation as I could ever have encountered. That's it for this week. We hope you'll join us again next week when we will be continuing our discussion with Laura about the Cassipian experiment. <coughs>